The readings from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 28, beginning at verse 12, and it's to be found on page 1000. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep him out and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Dan. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you raised Jesus from the dead. Please now send the Holy Spirit that we might trust fully in that same Jesus and lead others to him. Please be with me now as I speak and with all of us as we hear from you. Amen. Well, today's passage falls neatly into two parts, doesn't it? First of all, there's the story of the bribery of the tomb guards, and then there's the account of the disciples meeting with Jesus in Galilee. And I'm just going to look at those in turn, starting, as would be logical, with the first bit, the tomb guards. And it's very easy to focus on one side of what happened on Easter morning. And in many ways, it's right we do so. Because, of course, the Bible focuses on the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection appearances, and the disciples' experience of those and their reaction to it. But, of course, there were some other people in Jerusalem. In particular, there were the Jewish authorities. And that was a pretty big morning for them as well but for radically different reasons. 
And what we're told is that at the very time that Mary Magdalene and the women were rushing off to tell the disciples about uh, what had happened, the two guards were heading in another direction to speak to the chief priests. Those of you who are particularly astute will know there was, in fact, only one chief priest, Caiaphas. Actually, his father-in-law, Annas, who was a previous chief priest, also seems to have been called that. And it may be it was those two that the guards went to to speak to. Uh, We don't know. It may have been a wider group of Jewish leaders. Uh, The guards, by the way, were probably temple guards rather than Roman soldiers, as they're commonly depicted. That's why they rushed off to go and have a word with Caiaphas and others. Now, now the Jewish leaders immediately realised that there was a problem here, and they convened a council of war and concocted a plan. Uh, They uh, gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. Uh, If the report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. It was a straight lie. And you might feel that it's rather surprising that religious authorities should immediately resort to a lie. But sadly, history teaches us that people in power very often resort to lies when under pressure. And that includes religious people. They succumb to the theory that the ends justify the means, and they had no wish whatsoever for Jerusalem to believe something funny had happened to Jesus. Unintentionally, however, they started the long history of theories about what happened on that Easter morning. And their theory, and any number of others, are still circulating today. Of course, by the way, it's right. If somebody wants to consider following Jesus, they should investigate the claims of Jesus. And where better to start than on the Easter morning? Those of you who saw the film The Case for Christ or have read the book will remember that that's exactly what Lee Strobel did, the Chicago Times investigative journalist. He immediately recognised Christianity stood or fell by the resurrection, and he set out to disprove it, and in fact achieved exactly the contrary, as you will have have heard. And actually, in my own way, that's what happened to me back in 1974. I heard Sir Norman Anderson talk about the evidence for the resurrection, and I went away and thought about it and came to the same conclusion as Lee Strobel, albeit by rather less rigorous means, I have to, uh, have to admit. You see, there are two facts that absolutely nobody can contradict. They are beyond any real doubt whatsoever. Number one, Jesus was crucified. Number two, thereafter the disciples went around telling people that he was risen from the dead and they believed that with such passion that they were prepared to suffer and die for that belief. Those two things are clear. And you have to account for those two things. So how do you? Well, the trouble is, the, uh, the story the soldiers started uh, saying was inconsistent on its own terms. As it struck you, if they were asleep... How could they possibly have known it was the disciples who came and stole the body? So it doesn't get past first base. But more fundamentally, 
It doesn't account for the disciples' behavior. Would the disciples have suffered and even died for something that they knew was a lie because they'd stolen the body? doesn't add up. Of course, there's another theory which I've heard run by people when talking to them. Oh, well, someone else stole the body. Who? Why? What possible motive could somebody have for stealing the body and then not, not revealing it in due course? Nobody's ever come up with a satisfactory answer to that. So was the body there all the time? Again, allegedly reputable books state the disciples simply went to the wrong tomb. It was early morning, they were upset, went to the wrong place. Really? How long would you think it would have taken to spot that error? And if the disciples didn't spot it, you can be jolly sure the Jewish authorities would have spotted it pretty quickly. And had they done so, they could have killed Christianity at birth by producing the body. But they didn't, did they? Because there wasn't a body. As somebody else has written, the the empty tomb is one of the best attested facts in history. And then what about the resurrection appearances? Did the disciples make them up? Make them up? And then be prepared to die for something you just dreamt up. Surely at least some of them would have broken ranks and admitted the lie. It doesn't add up, does it? Or, of course, there's the hallucination theory. Those of you who saw the uh, um, case for Christ uh, will remember that. The idea that all the appearances were hallucinations. Well, as you also heard in that film, even purely secular atheist psychiatrists will tell you that the accounts, the evidence we have for the appearances are inconsistent with the hallucination theory. Ah, so maybe Jesus didn't die. Maybe he swooned on the cross and the cold tomb revived him and then he appeared to the disciples. Really? crucified on a Roman cross by Roman soldiers, put in a tomb, and then two days later he walks out and convinces everyone he's right as rain. You see, none of these things add up. The bottom line is, a purely forensic analysis of the evidence suggests that all of these naturalistic explanations are wrong, and that the disciples were right. Jesus was risen from the dead. So why don't people believe it? Why don't people accept that? There are plenty of books who reason in much more detail than I have over the last few minutes about this. And I've never heard them credibly answered. I've heard lots of assertions to the contrary, but no credible arguments to the contrary. So why don't people accept it? I'd suggest there are three fundamental reasons. Um, There are lots more than three, but categorising them as three. Um, The first is is what I call the David Hume-Sherlock Holmes approach. And it's... Yeah, I know. Don't wait for me. Wait for me. Um, David Hume was uh, uh, one of the most famous 18th century philosophers, a Scottish 
uh, philosopher. I'm particularly keen to say that with Will here because he was also wrong. So um, uh, he, was, he was an 18th century Scottish philosopher and one of his most famous statements was that a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. Sounds reasonable, doesn't it? In fact, it may even sound self-evident and obvious. But there's a problem. In order to apply that, we need to be able to agree what comprises evidence and how to weigh the evidence. And the problem is, we don't. You see, I've gone through the evidence, and I've been through it in much more detail than that, and I'm completely convinced that it demonstrates that Jesus rose from the dead. Hume, to say the very least, was not. He was an atheist. Why? Well, you see, he said, look, I've got all the evidence of the world around me and my life, and the bottom line is that I know people don't rise from the dead. And that evidence outweighs all the evidence about what happened in the case of Jesus. And that's where Sherlock Holmes comes into it. Uh, You may be more familiar with him than David Hume. And what he said, if you're an aficionado, is that uh, when you have eliminated the impossible, the theory that is left, no matter how improbable, is the truth. And so you come to the conclusion that the resurrection is impossible and therefore one of those other theories must be the truth. Now the reality is that the Hume-Holmes approach works jolly well in everyday life. It works in the courts every day of the week. It works well with the normal. But as soon as you come up against an event that is unique or that is outside our experience, it breaks down because it inevitably leads to the conclusion that it didn't happen. To be clear, I'm not suggesting that out there there are lots of people who are reasoning along, you know, saying, yes, I better consider what David Hume said, and uh, etc. Most people don't think about philosophy. Most people haven't even heard of David Hume. They probably have heard of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, But in reality, without being conscious of it, they are reasoning along those lines. And that is the first reason why they're rejecting Jesus. And David Hume's comments also point to the second reason. People don't want to believe in Jesus. Now you might say, oh come on, it's great news. You know, surely everybody would want that to be true. Surely, surely it, it's, it's wonderful news. Well, yes. But it upsets the apple cart, doesn't it? Think about those Jewish leaders. What about them? Well, you might say, yeah, but they were in power. I can understand why it upsets people in power, why they might not want to believe. But what about the ordinary people? The problem is it upsets the apple cart there as well. Because, you see, what happened to Jesus... And what Jesus said constitutes a challenge to us, a challenge about our lives. Because Jesus demands commitment, doesn't he? He doesn't just say, believe in me, he says, follow me. And you see, that's a bit of a problem because our self-centeredness rebels against that. 
And indeed, the Bible says something else. The Bible says that that very self-centeredness, that sin in us, blinds us to the truth. It says that unless God opens our eyes, we will not believe in Jesus. And that's reason number two, even more fundamental than reason number one. And reason three, I'll come back to that in a minute. I just want, before doing so though, to look at the second half of this passage. Uh, The disciples, we're told, went up to Galilee in response to Jesus' command. Jesus had told them to do so through the women. Uh, That's reported in verse 7 of uh, chapter 28. Incidentally, it isn't possible to produce a clear chronology of all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Uh, Matthew records this appearance in Galilee. John records a totally different appearance, if you remember when the disciples were were fishing. Luke, on the other hand, both in his Gospel and in uh, Acts, confines himself to the appearances in Jerusalem or just outside Jerusalem, uh, possibly because that's where he was. I'm not saying that they're contradictory, they certainly aren't, but it's simply not possible to be precise about which order they appeared in. What is clear, though, is the disciples went to Galilee, and there are two things to note about what they did when they were there. Verse 17, when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. First, they worshipped him. You will hear some people say, that the Bible does not indicate that the early Christians worshipped Jesus. That is simply wrong. The Bible says that people worshipped Jesus on a number of occasions, and here's one of them. The Greek word um, uh, translated worshipped here, proskuneo, is the normal word used to describe the worship of God in the New Testament. And the context here shows it's being used in exactly the same sense here. The disciples threw themselves on the ground and worshipped Jesus. They knew they were in the presence of God himself. They worshipped him. But some doubted. Uh, An awful lot of ink has been spilled about how it could be they worshipped him and doubted. I have no problem whatsoever with that, I suspect that they had a bit of the David Hume problem about them, because I would have done. They, they saw him, but, but people don't rise from the dead. Were they seeing things? Was this a hallucination? I can imagine all the things that were going through their minds. So I'm not surprised that even after having seen him back in Jerusalem, as they unquestionably did on uh, 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 Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday, they still had doubts. I've often wondered whether that's the reason that Jesus continued to appear for six weeks. He, He gave them time to get used to the idea that he was alive. He appeared to them in different places, different contexts, different times, so that steadily over that six-week period, their doubts were allayed, and they really did know it was him. I'm not sure all of them jumped to the conclusion quite as quickly as Thomas did at, at, at that stage. In any event, on this occasion, Jesus had something rather important to say to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. The Great Commission, one of Jesus's most famous sayings. You see, what he was saying to the disciples was, you, all of you, go, get out there, get out there among the people and make disciples. Tell them about me, persuade them to accept me and follow me. And baptize them, incorporate them into my church and then teach them all I have commanded you. Make sure they they, they are true disciples. During the church's history, there have been long periods where at least, if you judge from behavior, the church has believed that that was directed at the original 11 uh, remaining uh, disciples uh, and not at us. Uh, But if that had been the case, the disciples should have turned to Jesus and said, hang on a moment, there's no way we can fulfill all of that. There's only 11 of us. There are only 24 hours in the day and, you know, we've not got that long to live. And in any event, the rest of the New Testament makes it very clear that this is directed at all of us. It's directed at the church for all time. And of course, that's why we as a church have our three growth goals. I hope you know them, but I'll repeat them. Grow in outreach, grow in discipleship, grow the next generation. Reach out and disciple the next generation. It's because Jesus here tells us that that's what we are to do. That is the objective of the church for all time. If we don't do that, we're disobeying Jesus and things will go seriously wrong. Which brings me back to the third reason why people don't accept Jesus, the one I parked a few minutes ago. This is Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then can people call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Quite so. People don't believe in Jesus because we haven't told them about him. It's quite a big problem. We can't assume in this country that people know about Jesus. They don't. The Evangelical Church Alliance Church of England survey suggested that 40% of people don't even positively believe that he was a real person. Hope they don't believe in Socrates. More evidence for Jesus than Socrates and lots of other people. We need to tell them about Jesus. Now, of course, when Jesus was talking to the disciples, he was talking to them collectively. The Great Commission was originally delivered to them together. And it applies to us today, collectively, as the church. But we've all got our part to play in that. The church is us. It's no one else. You see, we are not all stand-at-the-front evangelists. I'm not. I'm sure most of you are not. But we do all have a part to play. We all have a unique set of members of family, friends, colleagues, acquaintances. And if we don't tell them about Jesus, if we don't tell them the gospel, who's going to? If we don't do that, 
then we're disobeying Jesus. Disobeying Jesus' most fundamental command to us, and we're letting down those, uh, those friends, those family, those colleagues, those acquaintances. Now, I know some people are really good at this, and, and I've watched some people in this church, and I'm in awe at, at their ability to do it, and I've learned from them. Uh, so I'm not saying that everybody's terrible, but I know I am by no means as good as I should be, in fact, very far f- from it. And I suspect most of us need to examine ourselves and ask ourselves some quite serious questions, which is why the questions are in here, the news, the news uh, sheet. Can I ask that you, you get your, um, your sheets and open them out? Because you will find that on the inside right-hand page, there are three questions with commendably big gaps for you to fill in the the answers. Um, I I just want to go through them briefly. Um, Just we think about it over, over the next week. Ask yourself, how often do you talk to non Christians about Jesus? Honestly, when was the last time you told anyone the gospel? What keeps you back? What's, what's, what's causing a problem there? And then what about prayer? Do you pray regularly? Is question two here. Do you pray, pray regularly for non-Christians? In other words, do you pray that specific people known to you will come to know Jesus? Do you participate in our Pray for Three program? If not, why not? By the way, in answer to that last question, if your answer is, because I don't know what the Pray for Three program is, could you speak to someone afterwards? Speak to me if you don't know who else to speak to. You must be part of our Pray for Three program. It's compulsory. (laughs) You think I'm joking. If we're not praying for our non-Christian friends, what are we doing? And then what about people coming to the, the, to the church? Um, have you, uh, where are we? Number three, do you invite friends, family and others to events at St. John's? The Christmas events, Easter events, the film, The Case for Christ. And if not again, why, why not? These really are high quality events. We don't need to be ashamed of them. So if you're not inviting people... Just ask, why not? And then fourth and finally, the most fundamental question of all, what are you going to do to improve? And, uh, and who might be able to assist in relation to all of this? It, it, it's quite an important question because, you see, we can all help one another in relation to this. We can all talk to one another. We can help one another. We can share experiences. We can encourage one another. That doesn't have to be done in one particular way. There's lots of different ways it can be done. But for example, literally after the service today, why not have a talk about it? We're all gathered here together. I suspect we'll find most of us have got similar issues and would like to talk about similar things. So, so why not do it? You could talk in your small groups, your home groups or something like that. If you have some particular question or issue or problem with all of this that you'd like to discuss, then do come, talk to me, talk to Will, 
talk to Eddie. I can do that. He's not here uh, uh, this morning. Um, talk to another member of the, um, the preachers and leaders team. I, I see at least one, Matt, sitting, sitting down there. We need to go out and encourage one another uh, to do all of this. Because this is important. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything he commanded us. And we do need to do that. London needs Jesus. Your friends and my friends, your family and my family, your acquaintances, my acquaintances, our colleagues, they all need Jesus. They may not know it, but they're in a bad place. And we've got good news, and we need to share that good news with them. And there's one final thing. Jesus didn't say, go and uh, good luck. He said, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And that includes now. If we go and do this, we're assured of Jesus' presence with us. Let's do it. Amen.